Morning, everyone. Good seeing you all here uh, this morning. I was gone last weekend, and then the weekend before that was our lectureship, so it seems like I haven't spoke to you guys in like a really long a time. So it's good to be back and be able to be into the uh, pulpit and be able to share. Thank you so much, Clint, for uh, covering for me uh, last week. And of course, we had 10 speakers that spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they did an incredibly wonderful job. So hasn't this morning been a wonderful morning? And I'm talking about from the very moment that you wake up this morning and you open up your eyes and that God has blessed you with his grace to allow you to live another day and then to walk outside and to notice all the beauty of the creation that surrounds us as we stop the car right outside the door out here in the parking and got ready to come in. I was telling Laura, I said, stop and just smell this air. Doesn't it smell fresh? Doesn't it smell absolutely uh, wonderful? And I just thought, what a, an incredible day God has blessed us with to be together with one another. Before I get in my lesson... I'd like to ask you to open your Bible to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. That's where we're going to be spending a lot of our time this morning. And then as you turn there, there are a couple of announcements that I need to make you aware of. The first one is this, is that on November the 13th, not this next weekend, but the following weekend, we're going to have a congregational day of dreaming where we're going to come together as a congregation back in the fellowship area, starting at 8.30, will be some, you know, coffee and some different kinds of refreshments. And then we're going at about 9 o'clock or thereabouts, we're going to start dreaming together. And so we are really coveting your ideas, uh, your dreams of what you'd like to see our congregation be and to do in terms of our education, in terms of evangelism, fellowship, service, what you thought of the lectureship. We want to hear your thoughts about that and to get your ideas and your wisdom about how we can grow as a congregation. And our promise to you is, is that, you know, as we get, and, and, and everything's, uh, you know, there's nothing off bounds. You can throw whatever you want on the wall, okay? And our promise is, is that, you know, we're going to consider every bit of it. Some of it we might do. Some of it we might not do. We might not do any of it. But one thing we'll do is we'll consider every bit of it. And so let me encourage you to set that time aside. I know Saturdays are really valuable to us, but that time as we as a congregation can come and share in the dream for this congregation. And then the next Sunday, that following day, that's Saturday morning, Sunday is going to be our mission Sunday. And in that service and in our class, we're going to spend some time interviewing our missionaries. And so Jim Corner, who had done a lot of work over in Cameroon, he's going to be one of the missionaries that we're going to be talking to. We're going to be talking to Betsy and, and, um, and uh, Brandon um, uh, Palmer, Aaron Palmer, I mean, and they're missionaries over in France. And so we're going to, Charles is going to spend some time interviewing him, and you can ask him some uh, questions. We're going to talk to Brandon and Katie Price for, from the Ukraine, and hopefully uh, Hi uh, Jones from uh, Guatemala. So we're going to spend some time as a congregation getting to know these people. We're going to Skype them. You'll be able to see them, and they will be able to see you, and we're just going to talk with them a little bit, probably like 10, 15 minutes each. And so that Sunday is going to be a great day to think about our mission work. We as a congregation do a lot of mission work, and a great portion of our budget every year has to do with mission work. And so I would encourage you to really be thinking about that uh, Sunday, November the 14th, for uh, Missions Sunday. So let's talk now a little bit about change. In fact, this morning, that's really what the lesson is about. It's about our before and after life. So as you think about change, if you were to make a list of the things that you would like to change about yourself, what would be at the top of your list? 
Well, generally when we think about that, some of you might say, well, I wish I, my height was different, or I wish my, my weight was different, or I wish my looks were different, I wish that maybe I was, more, I was more smart, or I wish I was more wealthy, or I wish, you know, you, there's a lot of things that we might like to change about who we are. I wish I was taller, I wish I was shorter, I wish I was skinnier, I wish I was heavier, those kinds of things. Or maybe it would be that, you know, you wish you were not addicted to sugar. Like, and, and that's me. I wish I didn't like that stuff. But, man, I like to eat chocolate and nutter butters and all that kind of cookies and cakes. And, but don't you wish you just were not addicted to a sugar or maybe late night snacking, which is our, my nemesis. You know, I got to say to myself, don't eat the nuts. You know, you don't have to have a cashew right now. You don't need to have that little square of, of chocolate. And Lori's always trying to push a brownie at me. So, so don't you wish that you didn't have late night snacking and that you could change that? Or maybe it's a more serious kind of issue, like maybe do you hate you? As you think about who you are, do you just not like who you are? Or do you have maybe some narcissistic tendencies? You say, well, what, are, you know, narciss- what does it mean to be a narcissist? Well, a narcissist, if you're wondering, is might be like if you get cut off on a road, and a road, you know, you're in traffic and some guy or some gal cuts you off, do you take that personally? Or was that person just not thinking? I mean, they didn't say, you know what, I think I'll cut him off and just, you know, because that's what I want to do because I don't like that person. Well, a narcissist sometimes thinks that way. Do you take things super uh, personally? Or do your relationships frazzle easily or or quickly? Or does no one want to be with you? If you could change some things in your life, what would those changes be? Well, just a few moments ago, out of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, as Elijah read to us from, me, from the fourth chapter, verses 17 through 24, in a nutshell, what Paul was talking about in that section of Scripture is that a Christian is to be changed, that they are a changed person, and that when they decide to follow after Jesus, Jesus begins to change our lives. And so our lives become distinctively different from the world in which we live. He is to make a marked difference in who we are. In fact, we have a new life that is in Christ. When we become Christians and when we start to become followers of Jesus Christ, then everything about us begins to change. It doesn't happen overnight. Our relationship with God changes at the moment of our immersion into Christ. But everything else goes through kind of like a slow evolution of changing in our lives as we begin to recognize various kinds of darknesses in our lives that we would call sin and recognize light that is the life of Christ. We begin to push things out and we begin to change, but this new life in Christ is constantly evolving and changing. And yet sometimes as Christians, we get confused about that. There's some confusion because the world in which we live definitely impacts our lives. And it influences us to such a degree that sometimes we wonder if we're on the right track or if we're going in the right direction. Society seems to be going this way, but I I want to go this way, or Jesus would have me go this way. And so this confusion begins to enter into who we are. So when you look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter and verse 17, listen to what Paul says. Now this I say, and therefore testify together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. You can take that word Gentile and you can change it to an unbeliever because that's what he's talking about. He's talking about that when it comes to Christianity, there should be a sharp distinction 
uh, in, our, uh, between, uh, uh, in our attitudes as well as our behavior when we compare ourselves as believers to unbelievers. What goes on outside there among the unbelievers should be markedly different what, than what goes on inside here with believers and how we live our lives. And that we are leave, uh, as believers are to take who we are outside this room and live among the world around us. So we are to be different in that way. Because why? Well, because God has designed a Christian to be someone who has a before and an after story. Here's what I was before I became a Christian, and here's what I am after I became a Christian. Here's how my life has distinctively changed. How, here's how it has made a marked difference in my life. So we all are to have a before and after story. So how many of you enjoy watching these home makeover shows? There are literally dozens out there, at least a dozen homemaker shows out there that are there. One of the popular ones is this HGTV uh, Home Fixer Upper, you know, by, with Chip and Joanna Gaines. And they are, you know, they are master builders. They know how to take a house that looks messed up and make that thing into a beautiful thing. And so always at the beginning of these episodes, whether a person has bought a new house or, or whether they uh, ha have a house that they want to have remodeled or, or just redone, uh, they bring these guys in. And they show you pictures of here's what this house looked like before. And then they go through a process. I don't know whether it takes weeks or months. They go through a process where they go through room by room, you know, the living room, the kitchen, the bedrooms, the bonus rooms, the living rooms, all the, or the dining rooms. They go through all these rooms and they completely make them over. They just change them uh, completely up. And so there is this before picture that you look, like, look at and you say, well, you know, that thing is really dated or that thing is really tore up or messed up. And then there's that after picture where that room is absolutely gorgeous. And you see that with this, this chip and joint of gains and their fixer-upper thing. They make some wonderfully beautiful things as they renovate things and they change things. So there is a before and an after well, when it comes to our Christian life, there is a before and an after story that comes into who we are. But sometimes we get confused about that. We get confused about the fact that uh, the after is, is supposed to be really different than what the, the before was. That your after, when you become a Christian, in terms of your thoughts and your words and your behavior, should start to change as well as your attitudes. So there should be a button that gets changed on a regular basis in our lives as we have this before life and this after life. After we come into a relationship with Jesus as Jesus begins to transform who we are and what we are about. But like I said, sometimes we get confused about that. And so there are three areas that I want to talk to you about real briefly. The first confusion is this. I should change before I become a believer. Some people get to thinking like that. They think, you know what, before I become a Christian, before I become a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to make changes in my life so that I am acceptable to God, so that I'm acceptable to Jesus. So it goes a little bit like this. It goes, the thinking goes like this. It, it, it's, it's like, you know what, if I want to get on the right side of God, then maybe I need to start going to church. And I need to quit cussing. And I need to stop the pornography stuff. And I need to quit lying and, and cheating 
and, and stealing. And I need to stop a lot of things that are going, I need to stop those things before I can become a, a Christian, before I am religiously acceptable to God. And the answer to that is that's not true at all. And the reason why I know it's true is because what Paul said, look what he says behind me says now this i say and testify uh, in the lord that you must no longer walk as the gentiles walk or unbelievers walk in the futility of their minds well want you if you have an esv to circle that word now now because what he's talking about is that there was your life before and now your life is supposed to be changing now that you become a believer you're now to walk no longer as unbelievers walk you're to walk in a different way so, so I know that part of the process of becoming a Christian is that the repentance takes place. And I know that there is a desire to make a change, and that's what starts you on your journey to having a relationship with Jesus. And so sometimes you can get the thing backwards into thinking that I've got to fix all this stuff first. I was a little bit like that before I became a Christian. You, most of you know my story. I didn't walk into a church building until I was 18 years old. And I could swear that the day that I walked into that church building, all those righteous people in there, all those perfect people in there would faint away dead and the building would probably collapse in on all of us. Okay? But it's not so. And, and once I got by that and, and knew that, I was able to start going and looking for the Lord and searching for the Lord in a lot of different uh, church uh, bodies. My point is simply this. God designed the Christian to be someone with a before and an after story. That's natural. Confusion number two. Confusion number two says, once I become a Christian, change is going to come quickly. It's going to come fast. And the answer to that is, eh, no. It's not going to come fast. It does not come fast. Now, your relationship with God comes like that. The moment that you're obedient to your faith and you believe and you repent and you are baptized or immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins into Christ Jesus and the blood of Jesus washes away your sins, then life is changed like that and you're brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your name is enrolled in the book of heaven. Your citizenship is in the kingdom. All kinds of blessings are yours because of that. But in terms of your changed life, it's not going to come fast. Sometimes it comes pretty slow. Because sometimes you have a pretty good, say, vocabulary of cuss words. And if you were even a little bit like me, I had made up a pretty good repertoire of those things. And, and so it wasn't like I was baptized one day on April the 8th and on April the 9th, I quit cussing. I had to knock them out like one word at a time that had to be removed from my vocabulary. And it took me a while to get all those things out of my vocabulary so I don't say those things. And so I, it, the hardest part is not to think them because it's real easy to think them and not to say them, okay? So all I'm saying is that the change does not come just overnight for you. There's going to be a time of maturing and, and changing, and that's what's going on in your life confusion number three i don't need to change because i'm a believer and that person said you know what since i've discovered the grace of god then listen by the grace of god and the blood of jesus i can do whatever i want you know if i want to cheat i can cheat if i want to lie i can lie the grace of god will cover me if i want to sleep around it's okay the grace of god will cover that but that's not so 
They probably misunderstood greatly Romans, the sixth chapter, where Paul says, shall we sin so that grace may abound? And his answer to that, he says, may it never be. I think the King James said, heaven forbid. You know, and so, it, it, so what he's saying is, is, shall we sin so that grace can abound? He says, no. Why? He says, because we become changed people. Listen to this. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ is raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in what? Newness of life. And when you get down to verses 12 and 13, what he's going to say is, is that we're to use our bodies as instruments of righteousness and not instruments or slaves of sinfulness. And so what he's saying is, is that you can't bank on the grace of God. In fact, over in Jude, I think verse 4, it says, there are those who take the grace of God and turn it into license. I think that King James says into licentiousness. The idea is that they have turned it into a license to sin. Because I have grace, now I can sin because grace is going to cover that. And when you think about that, you better watch out because you're going to run into passages like Hebrews 10 and verse 26 where it says, if we come to a knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for that sin. If you know it's a sin and you keep on just staying in that stuff, you may not have the blood cleaning that you think you have. And so... You don't need to change because I'm a believer. But you do need to change. Why? Because God designed the Christian to be someone with a before story and an after story. And the after story should be better than the before. It should be a change story in our lives. And that's why Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. That word testify uh, I think another term says, I affirm. You think of that as a lawyer type term where you're in court, where you're testifying, right? But that's not what that word means. It's a different word. It actually means to insist. So what Paul is saying, he says, with the Lord's authority, I insist that you make a clean break with the ungodly ways of unbelievers. You make a clean break with that. He's an apostle. He speaks by the authority of the Lord. So he says, I insist that you make a change, that there should be a difference in your, your life. And later he'll talk about how we go from the old life to the new life. In fact, let me just read uh, just a small, read this excerpt here for you so you can see what I am talking about here. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. He's talking about a change. He's talking about a before life and an after life. So a new life and an old life. And so just so we can kind of do a review with ourselves, would you say that you are the new man or acting as the new person, or are you still trapped in being the old person? If those who were closest to you and knew you best, would they be able to say, you know, John Doe there is a different person than he or she used to be? Or Jane Doe there is a different person than he or she used to be? Is he a changed person? Is she a changed person? Am I a changed person? There should be a marked difference that people start to be able to recognize and see among us. Some of you know that I'm a golfer. 
I'm not saying I'm a good golfer. I'm just a golfer, a hacker. But, you know, I golf with most of the people I golf with. I don't golf with friends. I golf mostly with strangers. So most of the people I golf with, they don't know me from anyone, and I don't know them from anyone. But those guys, both guys and gals, will be out there cussing and using profanities and innuendos and sometimes just being blatant with, with things. And they'll go along and we'll go through about, say, 10 holes, 12 holes. And they notice that I don't throw my clubs and I don't beat the ground and I'm not cussing after a missed putt, you know, or after a bad drive. They notice that I'm not doing that. And, and by the way, I do plenty of those things, so I have plenty of reasons too. You know, they notice I don't do those things. And so finally they'll say, what do you do for a living anyway? And I say, well, I'm a fire insurance salesman. <laughs> no, I don't. I usually tell them, I say, hey, uh, I'm a minister. And they say, really? And I said, yeah, I'm a minister. They said, oh, well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, you know. And then you see them trying to clean up their language, you know. And they'll say, hey, listen, I'm really sorry. I was cussing. I'm really sorry. And I say, hey, your problem's not with me. You know, your problem's not with me. You know, and, so, uh, and so, but all I'm saying is that can they see a difference? Because generally, they see there's a difference because they see that I'm not, would you like a cigar, Richard? No, thank you. Would you like a beer? No, thank you. And then I don't cuss, and that's a real giveaway, you know. So anyway, so old life and new life is important. Now, by the way, let me, I'm just not, I'm not telling you I'm perfect, okay? Okay, I'm not telling you I'm, I'm perfect in any stretch of the imagination. But they should see a difference in your, your life as you let your light shine. So God's design for a Christian is that we are to be someone with a before and an after story. So let's talk about an old before and after stories. People who, here's what they were like before, and then here's what they were like after. So when you think of characters in the Bible that had a before and after story in their lives, well, who would you think of? Well, some would say it would, would be Paul. Some would say, how about, you know, Matthew? Think about these guys here, okay? Think about Matthew. Matthew was a tax gatherer. Matthew had a notorious reputation. Tax gatherers were known as extortionists. They're known as cheaters, as liars. They were not allowed to give witness in a court of law. They were not allowed to go into the temple to worship because they were notorious characters. They were rich guys. They had lots of power and influence, and they were backed by the Roman sword, the Roman government. But Matthew saw something about his life that was amiss, and he walks away from it and becomes an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's amazing when you think about that. Or how about Simon, the zealot? Simon, when you talk about a zealot, zealots were not some guys that do just decide one day, you know what, I think I'm going to start killing Romans. These guys trained, they were disciplined, they exercised. They had a code of conduct that made them a zealot. They were assassins, they were murderers. That's what their job was, was to take out the Roman oppression or anyone else that was there. And it wasn't a few of them, there was a body of them. Simon was this guy. Simon was a trained killer. But he walks away from that, and Jesus adds him to the apostleship and isn't that amazing because the one person that simon should have hated more than anyone else in the world was was matthew the tax gatherer and the one person that matthew should have feared more than anyone else was simon the zealot 
But here they are, and they become friends, and they become pillars of the church. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen by trade. And most people would say that fishermen in that day, they'd be the construction worker of our day, and they were rough and tumble guys. They were men's men, if you will. Or as some of you said, Paul, the Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, one who was educated by Gamaliel. Paul, who had advanced far beyond his countrymen, but he was a violent aggressor against the church where he put people into prison and gave credit to even having them killed and even held the cloaks of those who stoned the, the uh, evangelist Stephen. That was Paul, but he walks away from all that Jewish pedigree where he is up and coming and gives it all up and calls it dung or rubbish or garbage and walks away from that. So why did they walk away from their old life to obtain a new life? Well, that's what Paul is talking about. He can talk from experience. He, knew why, he knows why he walked away. He knows why all people should walk away from the old life. First of all, in verse 17, he says the futility of the Gentiles. That word futile is a word that means meaningless. There's a whole book in the Bible that's written about that. That's 12 chapters long, the book of Ecclesiastes. It starts off by saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the Lord. Vanity, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Futile futility is all futility, says the Lord. The fear, and so the bookends of this book here starts at the beginning where the wise man fears the Lord, and it ends in chapter 12, says, when all is said and done is to fear God and keep his commandments. Everything in between, he says, is meaningless, and so he shares one experience after another that he'd went through in his life and shared in his life, and his summation when it was done. After he had chased all the gold in the world, after he had chased all the women in the world, after he had chased all the entertainment in the world and all the possessions of the world that that guy could buy, talking about Solomon, he says, vanity of vanity, it's all futile. Paul is saying that Eventually, you're going to get to that point where you recognize that about life. They recognize, whether you're talking about Simon or whether you're talking about Matthew or Peter, James, Andrew, and John, or Paul himself, they recognize that they were going nowhere, that they were without direction, that their destination was messed up. So most of you in here have flown, Right? If you've flown much, then you know that in these airports, you know, at, at Boise's airport, you know, they have like a coffee shop and a little restaurant outside the gates and inside the gates. Then they have more restaurants and coffee shops. But when you go to international airports, they have a lot of stuff in them. Charles de Gaulle Airport or Skiffle overseas, Charles de Gaulle Airport, inside that airport, once you get inside, Gucci, Christian Dior, Rolex watch. I've seen Rolex watches for $175,000. Rolex watches. I asked them if I could try one on. They said no. (laughs) You know, Rolex watches. Caviar. They cost them to the, I mean, it's crazy. It's like walking into a giant mall in those places there. But do people go to airports in order to buy stuff? No. Everyone in that airport has a destination that they're going to. They don't go to the shop. They should make a shop while they're there, but they don't go there for that purpose. They go there to fly somewhere else. 
And Christianity is a lot like that. Here we are on this earth here. Is our purpose here on earth that we might buy a lot of stuff and get a lot of power and fame and things and all that kind of, of, of stuff? Or do we have a destination that is far beyond that? Where Jesus says, do not lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasure in heaven where none of those things happen. You have an abundant life now, but you have an even a more abundant life that is awaiting for you on the other side of this life. So don't put all your, you know, all your jewels in one bag only to be disappointed in the end. I heard one guy say, well, uh, I'm going to bank on, you know, on um, just, uh, you know, changing into a different kind of life. I'm going to be reincarnated into something. Have you ever noticed when people talk about reincarnation that there's no proof at all about that? There's no way you can prove any of that. No eyewitnesses of that kind of stuff. Because they'll say, well, you know, in my past, I was a queen. And now here I am. Well, you must have done something really bad to go from being a queen to living in a trailer house. You know? And no one ever starts off as a roach or a mouse. And, and you can say, well, when I come back, I'm going to come back as a giant elk. Well, guess what? There's like a million guys trying to take your horns from you. Trying to oh, I'm, so don't put your, bet, your, your stuff in those areas there. Recognize that life is futile without Jesus being in your life, and that's what they understood. Their lives were darkened because of sin. Look at verse 18 there. Being darkened in their understanding, they're excluded or alienated from the life of, of God. Their moral compass was off. It's off. They don't know where they're going. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and each of us have turned to our own way. So the moral compass is off. When you're on a moral compass is off, you're headed to a moral graveyard. You're headed toward a moral graveyard that is, that is depraved. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me share with you how Paul describes the world in which he lived, which hasn't changed a whole lot from the world in which we live today. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. A lot of suppressing going on today where people are suppressing what is sin and even promoting that, which is sin. For even though they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools. And then he goes down and gives three different kinds of people, one of which is verse 24. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creator rather than the created or the creator who blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men also abandoned the natural function of the woman and burning their desires for one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. When you talk about a moral graveyard that is depraved, it's there because it's dead. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, that he says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins which you once formerly walked before you became 
a Christian. Your before story was dead. Your after story now is life. You've been raised and seated up in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed, malice full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That should shake you to your core. That we give hearty approval to those who practice such things. So, I had a commercial shared with me the other day. I saw a commercial that Dorito has put out. And in the Dorito picture, it's a cartoon. And in the cartoons, it shows a couple or a family going to an entombment or to a graveyard. It's, it's a nativity type scene. It's Christmas time. And they go to the thing there, and Uncle Albert is laying there, and they lay a bowl of Dorito chips at Albert's grave. And then all of a sudden, out of a mist and vision, Albert comes on the scene. And Albert, now in heaven, shares with his family that are still living his significant other, his homosexual lover in heaven. Several problems with that. Number one, Jesus said they're neither married nor given in marriage in heaven. But certainly, when you look at the scriptures, it's four square against that kind of a lifestyle. And that's what 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11 says. I mean, look at it. Because I don't determine what sins are sins. God is the one who determines those, those things. And, Jesus, and Paul says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor effeminate shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's no longer who you are. That's your before life, but this is your after life. And so, you know, society is doing a number on us. I mean, I'm serious. They're doing a, a huge number on believers today where all the way from movies to TV shows to commercials to social activism is pushing us towards something that God says is a sin and that will be judged harshly by him. And I know that in today's day, in 2011, 34% of Americans believe that same-sex marriage was acceptable. Today in 2021, 67% of Americans believe that homosexuality or same-sex marriage is acceptable. 67%. I'm saying to you, it doesn't matter what society says. And it doesn't matter how Hollywood or entertainment is going to twist that thing. It doesn't change what God has said about that subject. It just doesn't change that. And if you're thinking, well, but there's so many people who struggle with that. Do you know that back in, back in 2011, of the LGBTQ movement, only 3.6% of people aligned themselves with that movement, planned to live that lifestyle? 2020, June of 2020, 4.5% aligned with that lifestyle. 1.7 was either gay or lesbian. 1.8 were bisexual. 0.6% were transsexual. 
comes out to 4.5. In 2021, March of 2021, this year, it's 5.6% of the population. Still a very small, but you would think it's all over that it is pervasive. Well, listen, back in Abraham's day, it was pervasive. And in Jesus' day, it was pervasive. Then the Renaissance era, it was pervasive. And it's pervasive today. But we have to stand strong about those things. There is a darkness that is around us. And we're to be the lights of the world. Their lights were alienated from God because of sin. The word alienated means to be separate or to be excluded, to be shut out from the intimacy with God because of sin that is, is there. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, that you know what, well, you've showed a lot of extreme things there, Richard. I mean, you talked about LGBTQ. That's not us. Well, let me tell you who you are, okay, or what many of you are, and will be surprising to you. 1996 psychology study was conducted by the University of Virginia. They put together a study of 147 people between the ages of 18 and 71 years old, okay? These 147 people were to keep a diary of all the things that they said that were false over the course of a week. Uh, is, my, is my dress, does my dress make me look fat? No, dear, it doesn't. Uh, how are you doing? Life is terrible, but I'm doing fine. See what I'm saying? Little falsities, little half-truths, little lies, call them fibs, whatever you want. But here's what the study found out. The study found that most people lie once or twice a day. 147. Most of them lied once or twice a day. Both men and women lie in approximately one-fifth of their social exchanges, lasting 10 or more minutes. So if you're talking with someone more than 10 minutes, there is a good chance that you're going to be telling an untruth or a, a lie. And over the course of a week, they deceived about 30% of those with whom they interact one-on-one -on -one with. College students lie to their mothers in one out of two conversations. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's them, that's not me. Okay, so here's a challenge for you this week, is you keep a diary. And every time you haven't told the truth about something where you have fudged a little bit, where you have kind of did a little white lie, a little fib, a lie is a lie, you write it down. And you might find yourself in this people's category. It's tough. I did that, by the way. I tried that. Okay? And so we had an elders meeting yesterday. Enough said. <laughs> okay, and then it says they harden their hearts. The one translation says they callous their hearts uh, over. The word actually means to be petrified. It, well, here's what I mean. It means that a bone that's been broken and then heals itself is harder than before it was broken there in that spot. Or to be petrified, or to be callous. So what Paul is saying is that outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're going to have a petrified heart. You have a hardened heart. What is it that would cause a young man to walk into our mall and start shooting people? What would cause that? He obviously was hurting real bad inside, inside somewhere. There was, it had to be a heart problem of some kind 
that would drive a person to do that? Why would a person go into a theater and shoot people up? Why would they go into a mall? Why would they go into a church building? Why would they go to a concert and shoot people from skyscrapers? Why would people do that? It's all because of what Paul is saying about futility, not feeling that your life is meaningful, as though your heart it can be softened and pliable and made new by Jesus. I love so much what Ezekiel about 600 years earlier said as he talked about the heart of the nation of Israel and forward. He says, and I will give them, God speaking, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. What's being said, what he's saying is, is that God knows the before and after story. He knows what you are before, but he knows what you can become afterward. And he's excited about that. And he wants that to happen for you. People can change small things. God changes big things. And there's nothing bigger than the heart of a man or of a woman or of a teenager that he can change. Let me just move through these. So all Christians have a before and after story. I love what Paul said here. It's, it's one of my favorite passages. I have a lot of favorites, but this is one of them. First, Second Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Why did the apostles walk away from their old lives to obtain a new life? Well, their answer was told to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4th chapter, verses 8 through 12, where they're making a defense. And Paul simply says, or Peter simply says, the reason we are who we are and say what we do is because there is no other name that is given to man, men, uh, men, among men, among he in heaven, among men. There's, okay, let me start over with that thing. There is no other name that is given among men under heaven by which man might be saved. Only Jesus can change a heart. Only Jesus can change you. Only Jesus can take your before story and make it a great after story. So, what's your story? For those of you who are sitting at home, what's your story? You be honest. Be honest with yourself. What's your story? Is your story before, moving towards after, or is it after? Only you can answer that. And you need to do that while together we stand and while we sing and give you opportunities.